Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, we'll explore the classic 1972 self-titled debut album by Roxy Music. For that conversation, we'll be joined by Roxy guitarist Phil Manzanero. You know, we wanted to present it in the most attractive fashion. We knew that the music was weird enough, so we, we thought, right, well, let's make the visual image playful. Plus, we'll examine the lasting influence of Roxy Music. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are very excited indeed to do a classic album dissection of a record we both always loved, the 1972 self-titled debut by Roxy Music. Hugely influential still, Greg, and uh, we want to look at why. This band came together around the son of a coal miner, Brian Ferry, who went to the University of Newcastle to study art. Uh, you know, initially, Ferry, who has one of those great crooner voices, uh, you know, started playing in R&B bands, kind of leaning on the 50s, kind of a little bit of soul, uh, a group called The Gas Board. He met a bassist named Graham Simpson in that group. They set out to start their own band in 1970. They found a guy named Andy Mackay, who played saxophone, but that's not all he did. He liked to build his own synthesizers, and that put him uh, in, in, in friendship with a fellow named, I'm sorry, Brian Eno. Mm-hmm. He's part of the story. We got to talk about him. They put some ads in the Melody Maker, uh, initially found a drummer named Paul Thompson and a guitarist named Davey O'List. He had quite a resume. He had played with The Nice, the band that featured Keith Emerson before Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. He didn't quite work out. So another ad in The Melody Maker, and they find Phil Manzanera, and the group is complete. We recently got to ask Phil about joining the band. This album came out in 1972. Well, in 31st of January 1972, I turned 21, I had no gig. The next week, on the 4th of uh, February, I I joined Roxy. The week after the first contract was signed, three weeks later, we were in the studio recording this album. And about eight (laughs) weeks later, it was in the charts. I mean, (laughs) it was like ridiculous. It was Christmas every day. (laughs) That was Roxy music guitarist Phil Manzanera talking about joining the band We'll hear much more from Phil later in the show. You know, really, when Roxy Music, the self-titled album, came out, it didn't sound like anything 
else in popular music, in rock and roll at that point. But it didn't come from a vacuum, Greg. No, it didn't, Jim. I mean, there was a lot of stuff swirling around in rock music that, as you mentioned, Ferry was interested in all of it. I mean, everything from, you know, uh, Berlin Cabaret from the yes. 30s to Frank Wop to Sinatra to the latest sounds in, 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 in rock. He was trying to bring, blend those influences. Now, you think about it. In 1972, the biggest bands in England, the rock royalty, were, you know, the, the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. They were in the midst of... You know, their great creative run in the early 70s, and they were dominant on the charts. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. You also think about what's on the pop charts at the time. You know, those earnest singer-songwriters, James Taylor, yeah. Carole King, Paul Simon. You had the ascendancy of soft rock, that oxymoron. Rock. Bands like America and Bread. You had the first inklings of progressive rock. Yes, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, which you mentioned, Jethro Tull. Let me tell you the tale of your life. And then this sort of like little pocket of weirdness and outsider music by English standards was, was percolating up. T-Rex, Electric Warrior, kind of a, a record that was, you know, starting something, started a movement. David Bowie was jumping in with Hunky Dory and then Ziggy Stardust, which came out the same year as Roxy's debut. And then Roxy Music, who took a little bit from that glam culture that was uh, shaping around Bowie and T-Rex and others and, and, and incorporating it into what they did. But really, Jim, as you said, they didn't sound like anybody else at the time. It's almost as if they had dropped from another planet. Here well, we are, they also fully formed. They also didn't look like anybody else, Greg. No. Um, when, we, when we look now, there's this rich, detailed, well-illustrated box set celebrating uh, Roxy Music's debut. You know, I mean, Graham uh, Simpson in particular, the bassist, looks so uncomfortable with all that makeup and those glam. You know, now right. Eno, Eno lived for it, right? He's wearing ostrich feathers, feathers and, and eyeliner. Fairy. Fairy's doing the, you know, the the sort of 1930s gangster club crooner thing. You know, the other guys to varying degree, we can laugh at that, but there was a period of we are going to challenge gender roles. Mm-hmm. We're going to embrace uh, uh, being whoever we want to be. We're just going to, like, put all the sex together as well as all the sonic influences. Greg and I recently interviewed Roxy guitarist Phil Manzanera and asked him about the distinctive look of the group. He told us it was all the brainchild of Brian Ferry, Brian Eno, and Andy Mackay. The three of them said, look, we need to have two long-haired guys in the band who look like they're sort of vaguely rock and roll. So you guys cannot cut your hair. You cannot have blue all over you. I then started putting blue in my beard and stuff like that. Um, and Paul had a black eye, you know, which is like totally ridiculous. You know, we were a lot younger. Funny enough, we were all incredibly shy people. So to put on uh, a costume to go on stage and to put on makeup was a bit like being in theatre and adopting a role. We were, uh, you know, nervous as hell, but learning to play live and to put on a show. You know, we wanted to present it in the most attractive fashion. 
we knew that the music was weird enough, so we we thought, right, well, let's make the visual image yeah. Yeah. playful. That was Roxy Music guitarist Phil Manzanera. We're going to dig deeper into our conversation with Phil later in the show, but uh, speaking of the visual aspects of the band, it's almost impossible to ignore the imagery on Roxy Music's first album cover. If you, if you yeah. comb through the rock section in, in any record store in the early 70s, you, this thing would jump out. It was basically a model. It's like a glamour magazine photograph. Well, but, it's like the 50s Vargas uh, yeah. pinup. And it was almost a send-up of that, though, because normally when you looked at rock albums, there was this kind of sweaty earnestness about them, you know, virile rock gods. And here you have this glamour model, but she's not pouting like the typical ingenue. She's got this sort of predator's you know, teeth bared. Yeah. She's got this um, this little little dress on, but at the same time, there's a gold record peeking out from behind. Right, it. right, right, like right. Like right. she's hiding something. Like you know, she's she's laying a trap for you, buddy. You know, it's not. It, it, it is. It, there's definitely something a little off about it, and I think that was the intent here. You know, there was definitely a layers to this music that were meant to be discovered well, the yeah, more you listen to and it. And they're playing with that that rock and roll rock star Golden God, Rolling yeah. Stones, Led Sending Zeppelin, it up. Predator of Women. You know, they're, in the Roxy world, the women have all the power. That's 2HB by Roxy Music from their classic 1972 self-titled album. After a short break, we'll continue our album dissection, including more of our conversation with Roxy guitarist Phil Manzanera. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I never thought I'd see you Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a bit of Chance Meeting by Roxy Music from their 1972 self-titled debut album. Recently, we were joined by Phil Manzanera, guitarist for the band. He was originally recruited to be in the band through a classified ad in Melody Maker magazine, and that ad described the group's sound as avant rock, so I asked Phil if he thought that description fit. Well, you know, I, I just I guess I wasn't that clever at that time. You know, that didn't cross my mind at all. Obviously, I had a very different uh, upbringing to the guys in Roxy. You know, I was brought up in Cuba, Hawaii, Venezuela. I just thought, these guys are pretty cool. They're only playing two or three chords. I've been playing in a band, complicated time signatures, 13878, prog rocky type stuff. And I <laughs> thought, at last, freedom. There wasn't time to do anything very complicated. You know, we were on a very tight budget it was from beginning to end it was done in 15 days you know we're talking about the days before computers it was all very analog it was an old bbc wartime radio studio come Mm. cinema 
in uh, the basement of this old building near Piccadilly Circus, mm-hmm. which you couldn't be more British <laughs> about Piccadilly Circus. And um, we were all very nervous. It was the first time we'd been in a recording studio. Uh, the control room was up in a booth upstairs. Uh, so we were down there and, uh, you know, the little voice came out through the speakers. Okay, let's do it. And, you know, <laughs> the nerves kicked in and you just, like, went for it, you know. You've got me, girl, on the run around, run around, got me all around town. You've got me, girl, on the run around, and it's getting me down. Get and yet you were playing these uh, incredible... There was this incredible mix of textures on that record. You know, you listen to something like, uh, you know, Lady Tron. Then you look no further, for I'm gonna be your only. If there was something, these are these are really ambitious tracks, and you were doing this live. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like, a right? because it was 16 tracks, and you, you know, even on a 16 track, you can't really use track one and track 16. So. You're only going to have one or two shots at the at the thing. It's not like now with modern recording techniques. Um, you know, you just had to take a deep breath and just get in the zone. We were amateurs. We used to put, you know, a little inspired in front of the amateurs. But we were, you know, trying to get better, trying to be better. <laughs> we hadn't really played enough gigs and enough gigs in front of people. But one of the main things was that we were all having a lot of fun. We laughed so much. We were just so excited mm-hmm. to be in there. Well, Phil, I know that the uh, the Velvet Underground's first album and, and their entire career were a big influence on on uh, certainly uh, Brian Ferry and Brian Eno. Greg and I have interviewed them both together and, and separately many times through the years. Um, but but the complicated nature of that first Roxy Music album, in in different ways, each track leads to an entire album later in the group's career. Um, you know, it's like all there from day one, and yet it all comes together in a couple of weeks. So much has been made of the postmodern pastiche, you know, and Brian likes to talk about his mentor, Richard Hamilton, the pop artist, right? Um, but but this collage nature, <laughs> you know, of going in, uh, you know, was that like kind of mind blowing? Was it all there? Was there a, a plan? Well, uh, by the time we got to the recording, I mean, they had been uh, together, the bass player, Graham Simpson, Andy McKay, Brian Eno, and Brian Ferry had been messing around for over a year before that with these tracks you know um andy mckay met brian in uh, this mm. the, the autumn of 1970 so and they'd worked on demos over the year 71 and uh you know andy brought in eno a friend from university so you know those songs had been sort of worked on in different stages right. and you could hear the the demos of them which i didn't play on on uh that they did in Eno's uh, little apartment in Camberwell.
so you can see that the moods were pretty established so you know it was just a question of me coming to this stuff and yeah trying to join in this whole idea of of collage yeah i mean brian you know studied fine art uh, under richard hamilton and all that influence of collage and he was lucky to find a bunch of collage musicians really the opening track remake remodel um not only yeah. are you guys drawing throughout pop history but you're saying look at us while we do it you know, here's everything from uh, uh, Ride of the Valkyries to Day Tripper to Peter Gunn. Uh, these solos, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's very self-conscious. The way the Beatles had uh, on Revolver, you know, included some of the studio chatter to, to, to let listeners in on this is something happening in the moment. We'll let you in on the creative process. Mm. You guys took it to a new level. You know, we were just having fun and, and doing what we were doing. And... Uh, you know, the detail that you just mentioned, you know, that was like mm-hmm. made us chuckle, you know. Oh, yeah, what's your <laughs> reference going to be? You know, oh, God, what's that, Andy? Ride the Valkyries. You know, I'd never heard Ride the Valkyries. What, Wagner? I said, Andy, what's what's yeah. that? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, I was learning, you know. I suppose, you know, with with hindsight, I, I listen to it now and, and I do go, <laughs> wow, what was that? Or what you, We'd never get signed nowadays. All over the map. Well, and then there's this anarchic element. That's a wonderful word that you used. It's often credited primarily to Eno. Um, I think I understand, and Greg probably too, but but when it's said that he's not only playing synthesizer, but he's treating the other instruments, what the heck did that mean? Well, that was a very innovative thing that that, uh, was happening within the band. I mean, basically, you know, when I first came along, you know, for live gigs, Eno was banned from being on the stage because he made everyone too nervous. So he would stand in in the audience with his uh, mixing desk and uh, his VCS3 synthesizer, and there were no amps on stage. Everything went into his VCS3 synthesizer. So when you're saying treated, it all went into this uh, synthesizer, and he would then use the little um, dials which had frequency modulation or something called envelope shaping which is sort of wah-wah-y type thing and and different kinds of treatments that's what we call plus going through echo units well <clears throat> what transpired in the end was that we all got really <laughs> pissed off with that because what we were playing bore no resemblance mm-hmm. to what was coming out of the PA So we all then uh, revolted and said, no, we've got to have amps on stage Mm -hmm. so we can have a combination of a proper rock sound with the treatments blended in. You you know, it really was different from anything else at the time. Even in a time of great innovation, um, there was art rock going on and then there was the glam thing. And 
Roxy was something, it was neither one of those precisely. What was your sense of the reception that the music received? You know, as Bowie, uh, David uh, has said, you know, and you say there was mm-hmm. high glam <laughs> and low glam. <laughs> and David and us were high glam <laughs> and the rest were low glam. You know, there was the critical uh, uh, reviews and things, which were, you know, the people who got it, that was very good and everything. But there was, you know, the attempt to go and play live whether it's supporting Marlowe in Fresno, you know, with water bombs flying at us. He said, no, we are playing this music. You can throw whatever you like. We're going to mm-hmm. still play the Bob Medley. I know it sounds weird, and, 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 and you've never seen anything like this. Oh, You're wow. not getting us off, whatever you throw at us. So there was a there was a lot of that um, which we gritted our teeth to, but you know having certain people recognise that there was some value there, like John Peel in the UK and people on that first mm-hmm. American tour. You know we somehow thought, well we're just going to do this. We just got to do it. mentioned uh, how much fun it was, and I'm struck by how diverse the personalities were in the group, how it how it worked in the first place. You know, famously, Eno and, yeah. and Ferry didn't get along. I mean, Eno left after two albums. Um, what was your take on that relationship? Because it sounded very complex, and there was clearly like, uh, it was an almost two alphas in the, in the band, and the band was only big enough for one. Uh, what was your take on it? Well, yeah, you can't have two people <laughs> called Brian in the same mm-hmm. band. That That's well known. As, yeah. as a concept, that doesn't work. Uh, after he left, you know, Brian Eno famously said, you know, I, I, I'm a, a small independent <laughs> mobile unit. You know, He was not designed to be in a band. But, you know, we had a lot of fun. It wasn't, you know, confrontational the whole time at all. You know, we were too busy. We did hundreds mm-hmm. of gigs in those first two years. I mean... You know, there were there was a lot of uh, adventure, but in the end, by the time we were doing the second album, and we had a proper producer, Chris Thomas, you know, had worked with the Beatles and everything, and uh, it, there definitely wasn't room for an extra, you know, uh, person who had quite strong ideas, Brian Eno, you know, because he had his own ideas mm-hmm. of uh, production and stuff, and Chris Thomas. You know, had a fantastic pedigree. So one yeah. was going to go mm-hmm. with Chris Thomas, you know. If you had to choose a favorite track, what's your favorite track on that first album? Personally, because there's more of me and Eno messing around, Ladytron would probably be number one. But number close number two would be Remake, Remodel, because it was a sort of like the manifesto of you know, you're laying down our all beliefs here, that one track. It mm-hmm. summed it up, that, you know. It was exuberant, there was fun, it had wackiness, it had synths. It had little quotes at the end. Mm-hmm. It was about change. And, you know, at this point in 1972, especially in the UK, a lot of bands who were big in the 60s, mm-hmm. they were all drugged out. It was, you know, heroin had got the, the better of them. And it was all very dull. 
it was time for a new mm-hmm. change, and along came Bowie, and along came us. Yeah, thank God for that, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking to uh, Phil Manzanera of Roxy Music about Roxy's uh, classic debut album from 1972. Phil, thanks for coming on the show. Real honor, Phil. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. That wraps up our conversation with Phil Manzanera. As always, we want to hear from you. What are your memories of 1972's Roxy Music? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. After a break, we'll talk about some of our favorite tracks from Roxy Music, and we'll talk about how the album has influenced generations of rockers, from Blur to Mission of Burma. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner, Jim DeRigatis, and today we've been talking about the self-titled 1972 album by Roxy Music. We want to talk about some of the specific tracks on this album and uh, uh, dive deep as we do a classic album dissection. I'm going to start by talking about the worst song on the album, all right? (laughs) It is called Sea Breezes. Why do I say that? Well, it doesn't have the driving rhythm uh, or the sonic experimentation of everything else, I think, on the self-titled Roxy debut. What it does have, I think, is the crucial link of where they came from and where they will be going. Sea Breezes opens with the sound of the ocean. Uh, And then is this sort of very ornate Mellotron, or whatever it might have been in the studio, uh, uh, orchestrated kind of languid ballad. What's that about? We're forgetting that Peter Sinfield produced the first Roxy Music album. He had been the lyricist for King Crimson. <laughs> you know, so the record company puts these weirdly dressed guys in Roxy Music together with a name. You know, In the Court of the Crimson King was one of the big rock albums at that point, the birth of progressive rock. They came from progressive rock. Let's not forget that. There was as much in common with Yes and Genesis for Roxy Music as there would be in the future with T. Rex or Slade. So that's one thing. But I also think, Greg, this is the roots of the other album that many uh, Roxy fans love dearly, Avalon. That really easy listening, just seductive sound uh, of of really lush orchestration. It's where they would go uh, in the future in one of several directions besides the disco era. Uh, And I, I think it's all there on the first album.
That is Sea Breezes by Roxy Music. Greg, what's the song you want to talk about? I want to play the first song on the album, Jim. I think it's a manifesto of sorts. It really, you know, you mentioned that Sea Breezes was kind of an indication of where they were and where they're going. Remake, remodel. This is very much a blueprint for the future of Roxy Music. Here's everything yes. we want to try to do in one song. Well, not only that, but here's the entire history of popular music <laughs> yeah, right. in one song. And, and sending it up, of course, you know, but at the same time, tr- truly loving it at the same time. That was a, that was sort of the the contradiction that was inherent in every everything Roxy Music did. The, the chorus is an automobile registration plate. Yeah, I mean, it's license a number, yeah. Yeah, I mean, here we go. Basically, it's it's the story of every Brian Ferry song. It's about the beautiful woman, and she's not coming toward him. She's walking away from him, yeah, or in this case, just driving away from him. Just out of reach. It's like a phantom, a ghost. He's haunted by this license plate that he can't get out of his head. He wants this woman. He has no idea how to find her. This is the only clue he's got. And it, it kind of speaks to a certain amount of frustration well, on his part. A little stalkerish. It's a, it's you know, little, he's going to track little, her down by this license plate number. A little stalkerish. Almost every song that Ferry has ever sung has got that vampire stalker thing going on. Yeah. I'm going to haunt you. I'm going to trail you. I'm going to find you. I'm going to seduce you. Um, but, of course, he's a failure at all of it. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think the part that he acknowledges that he's not very good at it well, that's one um, is, reason is the more poignant. You love him of because of that, but also he's he's the consummate gentleman. Yes, I mean you know the erudite uh, Englishman, uh, total gentleman, you know, and at the same time this really dark, creepy side, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the song is hurtling ahead. This rhythm section is phenomenal. Uh, Simpson, who was only in the band for one uh, record, basically the, the bassist was a was a great bass player, and then uh, Thompson, the drummer was a, a journeyman, but man, he could hit those oh, things. Oh, he was and, a monster. And then on top of that, you've got this crooner singing about this elusive woman, and then you've got Manzanera and Eno yep. and Mackay on oboe creating all sorts of textures that sound otherworldly. So you've got all this noise with this melody, this hurtling rhythm, and then you've got Ferry saying, I could talk, 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 talk myself to death, yeah. but it's not going to do any good. So you're going, what is this? And meanwhile, there's like these solos in the middle of the song where they're referencing the Beatles, Peter Gunn, Wagner, you you know, the history of music, right? Yeah, and the whole all, thing. All in the series of solos We are stealing the the from song. everything now. So you've got this mishmash. It shouldn't work, this collage. Really no chorus other than that refrain of the, of the license plate. And yet it's this song that is just absolutely riveting. This is Remake, Remodel from Roxy Music.
Remake, remodel from Roxy Music. Jim, uh, what's another track you want to play from uh, the Roxy Music debut? You hopped on it first, so you claimed all the ones I would have, but that's good. <laughs> it made me dig deeper and listen for the 979th time to this record. Uh, I want to talk about the Bob, parentheses, medley. Uh, you know, a lot of the lyrics are very cryptic. Uh, a license plate for a chorus. What is the Bob? They're talking about the Battle of Britain. And there are uh, the sounds of battlefields and gunfire and explosions. Let's not forget, Brian Ferry and everyone else in the band, uh, except for Phil, um, were, were in their playpens when the bombs were dropping during the Nazi Blitz uh, of World War II. That has, has shaped the music mm-hmm. of much of British rock since. Let's look at all of Pink Floyd, okay? Uh, and yet the lyrics are not about that at all. They're about, I think, the quiet moment after the battle when uh, uh, Ferry as, is, as always, either pursuing or walking with a woman just out of reach. Uh, maybe she's not there with him. I dreamed last night about your face. But later he sings, when the party was over and all was quiet and still, we walked together in the moonlight. Um, as much as the sound of the uh, the gunfire, uh, Eno's synthesizer mm. in the beginning, mm. all right? He is just messing around with this analog synthesizer, uh, you know, putting the patch cords in this hole and that hole, and I'm, I'm turning all the dobs and niles, and yet it's, it's brilliant. It perfectly sets the stage for this song, The Bob Medley by Roxy Music. Bob Medley, man, it's just I could listen to Salmon all day. <laughs> Here's another one that I love to play. If there is something, um, you know, we talked a lot about Ferry's vocal style. And it was intentional the way he sounded. You know, people go like, "That's that's kind of weird." 
you know, that vibrato sounded very affected. Uh, didn't sound like many rock singers. Okay, here's why he doesn't sound like many rock singers. He's not trying to imitate a blues man or a soul man. All of the British rockers from that era were trying to imitate American singers from the South, yeah. right? African-American men, basically. Uh, Brian Ferry said, you know, I want to sound English. You know, I'm going to be different from everybody else. You know, I'm going to have this affected croon. And when he did dip into R&B, because he had a little bit of experience in that. You mentioned that he'd played in an yeah. R&B band before. If there is something, when this song uh, shifts gears a little bit right in the middle, I would do anything for you. He slips into, I'm going to be Otis Redding for two minutes here. Yeah. And the, the lines are just hilarious. I would put roses around our door, sit in the garden growing potatoes by the score. Well, and This look, is his idea yeah, of romancing yeah, yeah. this woman, you know? But, 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 you know, when you say he becomes Otis Redding, let's not forget that one of the highlights of all of Ferry's solo career has been his ability to cover other artists. Right. And bring something really unique no, to them. And he, Black artists, white artists in every genre. He loves them, but he realized there's no way I'll ever sound that good. I, so I need to create my own distinctive style. And I think he did that on If There Is Something from Roxy Music on Sound Opinions. That is If There Is Something from Roxy Music. Jim, you've got another cut from the self-titled debut. One more, uh, Greg. It only appeared on the self-titled debut in the U.S. The single, Virginia Plain, uh, didn't make it on the initial British uh, release. These were the days when the British release was often completely different, (laughs) or very much different than the American release. But I think now that the uh, anniversary celebration box set reissues, remasters, Virginia Plain belongs on that first Roxy album. Number one, because it's a killer rock song, probably the greatest uh, pop song on the whole album. Yeah. Right? I mean, it was, it was a hit for them in the UK, but also I think as much as Remake Remodel being a manifesto of the way this band operated, so is Virginia Plain. Uh, it, it, its title comes from one of Ferry's own paintings, which was the cover of a uh, tobacco package. <laughs> uh, Virginia Plain was the name of this brand of tobacco that he captured watercolor painting on paper, but he took a surrealist bent. Uh, but it also, of course, sounds like a woman's name. She doesn't actually get name-checked, whoever this mysterious woman is, 
but a member, tellingly, of the Warhol superstar crowd mm-hmm. does. Andy Warhol, surrounded by fabulous people who were put in his movies, who danced on stage with the Velvet Underground, a sacred band to Roxy Music, and, and who, who uh, you know, just became the first people who were famous for being famous way before Kim Kardashian. Baby Jane Holzer was one of those people. Baby Jane's in Acapulco. We are flying down to Rio, <laughs> sings uh, 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 Ferry. And then he says later, can you see that Holzer mane referring to her hair? Meanwhile, Phil Manzanera tears it up on this song. He claims, uh, I've seen in some interviews, uh, that, that he had no idea what he was playing. It was improvised. It was first take. And that's what made it onto the record. Virginia Plain by Roxy Music. Greg, we could just do every song. I think we should do the expanded five-hour podcast version of, of Roxy. Maybe you're going to give us one more highlight. Yeah, I, I mean, what I would recommend to somebody is just put the first three songs on, and you will get, you know, you'll if you're not pulled in after those first three songs, recognizing the genius of this band, and also the fact that this stuff still sounds very relevant, very contemporary. It does not sound dated at all. Ladytron being a good example of that. Uh, Eno on VCS3 synthesizer and Mackay on a treated oboe creating this landscape at the start of the song that sounds like it's uh, a spaceship landing. Yeah, it's, a, it's the poor Englishman's version of a Moog. It's a it's an ugly looking thing. It and is. at the same time it's making all these otherworldly sounds. You can feel the spaceship landing, you know, and it's <laughs> this this sci-fi transmission. At the end of the track there's a, this amazing Manzanera guitar solo, just total chaos. In between, there is fairy in full on stalker mode. So this alien lands from outer space saying, I'm gonna find some way of connection, hiding my intention. Then I'll move up close to you. You know, this is Ferry, the stalker, doing his thing amid this kind of very weirded out sci-fi atmosphere. 
that the band is creating around him. Yes, this did not sound like anything in 1972 uh, that was going on in mainstream music at the time. And it still sounds alien and disturbing and wonderful, and amazing. Uh, Lady Tron from Roxy Music on Sound Opinions. You've got me, girl, on the run around, run around, got me all around town. You've got me, girl, on the run around, and it's getting me down. If you want to find a lover, then you look no further, for I'm going to be your only searching at the start of the season, and my only reason is that I Tron by uh, Roxy Music from that self-titled debut. You know, so Greg, I think there's a lot of ways we can look at the way uh, the influence of Roxy Music endures today. First of all, there's the the look of the band, the uh, uh, polysexual, adventurous, <laughs> flamboyant, theatrical look. You see that in so many groups. It, it, it exploded in the new wave era, the new romantic bands, yeah. challenging gender roles, uh, going back to 50s glam, but also going into outer space. Um, I think the use of, uh, dare I say, Brian Eno's analog synthesizers, you know, you, you hear that echo in the work of Stereolab, driven mm-hmm. by the analog synths. In Moby, uh, who similarly brings in this, this, this love of melody and old uh, American songcraft, right? Uh, you know, with field holler samples. Hayfex Twin, inventing a musical language. I think also Arcade Fire, especially in their more dance-oriented moments, really bring a lot of Roxy's uh, big orchestral arrangements into what they do on the rock and roll stage. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about a band like the Cars, uh, per- perhaps the most famous band of the so-called New Wave era, in terms of just commercial presence on the charts. Uh, ho- rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Yeah. And, you but know, Roxy as isn't. much as I love the Cars, the fact that they're in the Hall of Fame before Roxy Music doesn't make any sense to me at all. Let's think about how the Cars in, were influenced by Roxy Music. Uh, specifically Greg Hawks, the keyboard player, adding that element of chaos and noise to a lot of their songs. You know, the Panorama album, the third Cars album, the, oh, one, yeah. that, the one that a lot of people were kind of iffy on, likes. <laughs> the, more, the more experimental side of the band, that was directly influenced by Roxy Music. But even a song like Let's Go, one of their biggest hits, you can hear those melodic and, and noise elements sort of colliding. 
not only in Hawks's uh, keyboard playing, but in Elliot Easton's approach to the guitar. Very Phil Manzanera influenced. People like Nile Rodgers have talked about Roxy's influence on the music of Chic and some of the 80s projects that mm. he worked on with people like David Bowie. Put on your red shoes and Susie Sue of the Banshees was a, was a huge fan of Roxy music. They were relative contemporaries. Uh, she and the Banshees came up just a little later than Roxy did, but man, they were drawing a lot from them and Bowie. Jack White has spoken fondly of Roxy Music's influence on his approach to music, the sort of the theatrical aspects of some yeah. of the way they presented their, their music. And Grace Jones uh, was covering Roxy Music songs. Uh, I think in some ways she wanted to be Brian Ferry, or Brian Ferry wanted to be her, vice oh, versa. Who wouldn't <laughs> want to be Brian Ferry? It was the, the attitude and the influence, the sense that rock was this wide open playing field and you could do anything with it in 1972 was a really fresh idea and still remains, I think, incredibly inspiring. One last thing I really want to touch on. We understand the melodic analog synth lines that uh, Brian Eno added to Roxy, but we don't understand that element of chaos that you just mm -hmm. referenced. We've seen that uh, start with Roxy music and then spread into many other sounds afterwards. I'm going to give you just one example. The way uh, Mission of Burma, with its original sound engineer and tape operator, Martin Swope, would take sounds from the band members on stage, use analog tape loops, the very old-fashioned way, and create these new noises. I think it brought an element of spontaneous improvisation that we have to go back to like Coltrane and bebop and avant jazz yeah. to really see. And yet it's being employed in the service of art punk. Uh, you know, Swope was was, a, was an acolyte of Eno. So was uh, Alan Ravenstein of Per Ubu. Mm -hmm. You know, listen to this song from 1982, the uh, debut album by Mission of Burma, Secrets. And unless you say yourself, I want to hear what he's talking about. You won't even hear it. Mm -hmm. It's a background feeling, a vibe, a, a weirdness of swelling sound uh, that once you become aware of it, you're like, wow. Mm -hmm. Mission of Burma, Secrets from 1982. You gotta love that. You gotta love Roxy Music. That wraps up our classic album dissection of the 1972 self-titled debut by Roxy Music. As always, we want to hear from you. Where do you hear the influence of Roxy Music today? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we've got showrunner and former record company talent scout Brian Koppelman, and we're going to talk to him about how he combines his love of music and the screen on the Showtime series Billions. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, Andrew Gill, and our intern is Hannah Edgar. Had to phone you, had to phone you just to talk to you. On Sound Opinions, 
everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey guys, this is James in Eugene, Oregon, and my favorite ocean song is Fountains of Wayne, A Dip in the Ocean. It's a wonderful, pure pop gem and always makes me smile. Thanks for the good work you guys do. Love the show. Take care. My name is Vanessa Shera. I now live in Glenview, Illinois. I used to call from Lincolnshire. And you asked, what sailor song is my favorite? And it's Cindy O' Cindy. sung by the Beach Boys, also sung by Eddie Fisher, and it's sung in German by Schlager singer Margot Esther. And my mother used to change the lyrics from Cindy O' Cindy to Vani, Oh Vani, Vani being my nickname. And she used to sing, Du musst nicht traurig sein, You must not be sad, instead of, Your heart must be sad. Er kam, als du erst 18 warst, von großer Fahrt zurück. Er küsste dich so scheu und zart und sprach vom großen Glück. And I sing it every time I'm at Paul Cemetery in Spring Road, Illinois. And I had it tattooed on my arm. Wonderful song. I'm tearing up. Cindy, oh Cindy. Much love to you all. Thank you. Uh, hi, Jim and Greg. Uh, this is Nicholas calling from Milwaukee. I uh, really enjoyed your show about songs from the sea. Uh, one song that really speaks to me is The Water Boys, uh, Fisherman's Blues. I mean, the entire album uh, seems like it's about the sea. It seems like it could have been even uh, written at sea. I wish I was a fisherman. Like the uh, tradition of Irish poets and writers, uh, the sea seems just absolutely central to uh, their art. And Waterboys in general just seem to be a really underrated band. That album came out in 88, and I imagine if it had come out 10 years ago, uh, part of the Roots Rock revival, it would have gotten so much critical attention. Thank you. Good afternoon. This is Judah calling in from San Francisco, and I'm listening to your 
watery uh, segment. It's lovely, but I've got just enough decades on you guys to really wish you could include Sea of Love with Phil Phillips in the Twilight. I love you. If you ever hit another um, water segment, uh, it might be a nice uh, addition to it. I'll let you guys keep up the good work. No more messages. How much I love you. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.